So Luke is out of town, and Dan is sick, and Bob is sick, and Bruce is sick, and I'm sure you can tell that I got sick. So at some point, I might call on one of you to come up and just finish this at some point, but I appreciate you hanging in there with us this morning. Our passage this morning, much like last week's, opens on a very somber and bleak note. The downfall of humanity has been swift. From the moment that Adam and Eve took the fruit in the garden, things for humans have been getting worse and worse and worse. And as we saw last week, there was all sorts of violence and sexual deviancy and corruption down to the very core of humanity. And with that in the background, we're introduced for the first time in the scriptures to one of the clearest, easiest to understand doctrines that all scholars for all time have always agreed on. Eschatology, the end times, and the return of Christ. Some of you might be thinking, we're barely six chapters into Genesis. How in the world are we already talking about the end times and the return of Christ? I think that will become clear why here in a few minutes. There's a lot packed into our passage and our time is limited. So there's a few things we need to unpack to understand it better. So our outline will be one doctrine, two attributes of God, and three warnings. First, there's one doctrine that we need to understand, one doctrine at the heart of why the flood happened, and that is the doctrine of sin. And sin is not a popular topic in a lot of modern Christian writing or recording. There's actually a lot of voices in the evangelical world encouraging pastors and church leaders to avoid talking about it because it can be discouraging or it might hurt people's feelings when you talk about sin. But the Bible has a lot to say about sin. So we need to pay attention. And the clear reason that God is bringing a flood to destroy the earth is because of the people's sin. We've been watching humanity suffer the consequences of sin now for a few chapters in Genesis. So obviously, it's very important. And when you think theologically, if you don't talk about sin, what is the point in talking about the atonement? What did Christ even come to do? If we don't talk about sin, how do we understand sanctification? How we grow to be more like Christ? If we don't understand sin, how do we understand the mercy of God? There is a proportionality between your understanding of sin, its seriousness, its gravity, its consequences, and your understanding of just how great the mercy of God is. And you sense that at the end of Romans 5, where sin has abound, grace has abounded all the more. If we have a trivial view of sin, we will have a trivial view of God's mercy and grace. If we have a trivial view of sin, we will have a trivial view of Christ's saving work for us on the cross. But if we have a biblical view of sin, we'll marvel at the fact that God has shown his mercy to us and saved us from our plight. So there's two things to understand about sin. There's many things to understand, but for the sake of our time, too. First is the fact of sin. There's obviously something very wrong with the world. You just have to watch the news for five minutes to see that. But even closer to home, we've all been hurt by sin. We've been the recipient of harsh words. We've been stolen from. We've been lied to. Some of us have been the victims of physical violence. Some of us have been the ones to commit these things. So what's the actual problem with our world? You 
read the paper, you watch the news, you talk to people, what do they say? Well, some people will say that the issue's economic, that there wouldn't be so much violence and unrest if we just had vibrant, growing economies. Or other people will say that the issue is political, that if Congress would just stop bickering while the ordinary people suffer, everything would be okay. Some people say the issue is the family or it's education. People say that people are basically good, they just need good structures in place so that they can learn good moral knowledge and not follow negative role models. And there may be a grain of truth in some of these explanations, but they all have one thing in common, their external structural problems. The problem is outside of us, like a car that is out of alignment or a bone that's broken. We just need a little fine-tuning, a little structural repair, and then we will be good as new. But this is where our passage stands up to the cultural narrative. Look back again at Genesis 6, verses 5 and 12. The Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. Verse 12, God saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. Our most pressing problem is not structural, but moral. It's not out there. It's right here. Our most pressing problem is sin, which means falling short of God's standard and rebelling against his laws. Sin is what has messed up the people of the earth in Noah's day, and sin is what has messed up us. And in turn, as we saw with Lamech and his descendants, sin is what has messed up the structures of society. And in his book, How People Change, Tim Lane says this, whenever you believe that the evil outside you is greater than the evil inside you, a heartfelt pursuit of Christ will be replaced by a zealous fighting of the evil around you. A celebration of the grace that rescues you from your own sin will be replaced by a crusade to rescue the church from the ills of the surrounding culture. Christian maturity becomes defined as a willingness to defend right from wrong. The gospel is reduced to participation in Christian causes. So sin is an undeniable fact in our world. I think we can see that clearly. Now that we have established that it is a fact, we need to see the problem of sin. The problem of sin being moral is that it means that there is actually a standard. If problems were merely structural, it would be so much easier. You can tweak a structure and thereby tweak the standard. We live in a culture where personal sin no longer makes sense, much like the people of Noah's day. Sin has vanished from our moral imagination because God has vanished from our moral imagination. But if you misunderstand the disease, you will never arrive at a cure. And this is the problem with sin. Sin suggests a standard. Sin is different than evil. Evil is a pretty nebulous word. We can call Russia evil for its invasion of Ukraine, or we can call a gunman evil for how he kills people. We can call Republicans evil, or Democrats evil, or people who don't like Taylor Swift evil. That's a convenient thing about evil. It expresses moral revulsion without setting it against any standard. It's just nebulous. 
Anything can be evil. But the difference between calling something evil and calling something sinful is this. Whereas both are used to describe what is horrific and heinous, only sin understands what's evil in relationship to God. So because sin is evil as it relates to God, we have to understand two attributes of God to understand why he would flood the earth. So picking up at verse 13, we read, Then God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to every creature. For the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. This passage can be difficult to come to terms with. So many of us think of God as this kind, gentle old man with a long white beard shooting rainbows and sunshine out of his fingertips for everybody who would call on him. That he is filled with love and compassion and will do anything it takes to rescue his people. And yes, it is true that God is loving. Yes, it is true that God is compassionate. But there are two other attributes of God on display in the passage that we have to come to terms with. First is God's holiness. To say that God is holy is a reference to God's otherness or his majesty. The fact that he is not like us. He is transcendent. Holiness also refers to God's purity. He is ethically distinct from us, separate from sin. God is wholly unlike us, totally clean and radiant, without spot or blemish, pure and blameless. And in his holiness, God is totally unapproachable in the people's current state. He is totally unapproachable in our natural, sinful state. He is unstained by sin. So because of his holiness, God could not allow humanity to carry on in their rebellion and still call them his people. His holiness demands separation from wickedness. That in and of itself would be reason enough for God to have sent the flood. But the second attribute that we want to look at is God's justice and righteousness. And often we think of justice as public and righteousness as private. Justice is what happens in the courtroom. It's what happens in the media. It's what happens in public opinion. And righteousness is all about who I am on the inside. But that's just not the case when it comes to God. Justice and righteousness stem from the similar root word in Greek. They refer to strict adherence to a law or standard. God is always right, and he always acts according to what is good, right, and just. God's justice and righteousness are the reasons that this corrupt people's sins must be dealt with. He is bringing his judgment to mankind in the form of a flood. Certainly, this is what Moses was reflecting on when he wrote Psalm 90. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. There's much more we could unpack for both the doctrine of sin and these attributes of God, but it's important to note 
because God is holy, can have nothing to do with sinful people. Because God is just and righteous, he must act in a way that is consistent with his character and nature. And that's just what he's doing. He's acting consistently with the promise that he made to Adam in Genesis 2. Starting in verse 16, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. And at this point of the biblical narrative, we see humanity on the brink of destruction because of sin. We see the wrath of God being ready to act just as he promised he would in Genesis 2. But there is hope. There's a lot of hope. There's much to say about Noah and how he is a type of Christ, how he points to Christ, and how he will be like a new Adam, or how the ark is a picture of Jesus taking on the wrath of God and covering his people. And these are all ideas that we'll explore over the next several weeks as we unpack more of the flood narrative. But to end our time, I want to pick up on something Jesus relates back to this passage as we consider how this passage points us to the future day of Christ's return. Read in Matthew 24. Now concerning that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, except the Father alone. As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. We're pointed to the first coming of Christ back in Genesis 3, when God gives a curse on the serpent and then covers Adam and Eve with the skin of an animal. It's our first picture of the first coming of Christ. And here we find Jesus, who is always interested in showing his followers how the whole Old Testament pointed to him, how these days point to his second coming. Jesus describes that day like this. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So much like the flood was, the return of Christ is going to be swift. It will be sudden. It will be violent. Peter describes it this way. They deliberately overlook this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago, and the earth was brought about from water and through water. Through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the, God, of the ungodly. And in the days of Noah, not unlike today, people were eating and drinking and being given to marriage, living in sinful bliss. They were totally caught off guard by the flood, which is amazing. It's amazing. Consider what Peter says about Noah. And if he didn't spare the ancient world that protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others when he brought the flood on the world of the ungodly. Speaking about Noah, Peter acknowledges the fact that when he received the warning of the flood, 
Noah didn't just obey God and say, okay, I'm going to run to the mountains. I'm going to build this boat. Thank you for protecting my family. No, he warned others. He preached to the people. And how did they respond? Jesus tells us. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. It wasn't that they were hostile. Certainly their behavior was in hostility towards God. Their whole lives were in total rebellion against their creator, but it wasn't hostility that caused them to ignore the warning. They just weren't paying attention. And Jesus says it will be the same when he returns. So to end our time, I want to highlight three warnings that we get from this passage and Jesus' teaching on it. First, don't be caught off guard. Don't be caught off guard. It's easy to think about the people in Noah's day being ignorant and corrupt because they don't have our modern sensibilities. They didn't have iPhones and cable television and Teslas and whatever it is that makes us so fancy and sophisticated and put together. It's easy to think that because they lived so long ago, they weren't as sensible as we are. But consider this. On November 22nd, a man shot and killed six of his co-workers at a Walmart in Virginia. On November 19th, a person opened fire at a gay bar, killing many in Colorado. On November 13th, four college students in Idaho were stabbed to death in their sleep. In March of this year, the White House and President of the United States adopted the Transgender Day of Visibility, celebrating our culture's confusion on something as basic as what is a man and what is a woman. In Iowa, 22.8% of the population admits to either binge drinking, which means having more than five drinks in one sitting, or heavy drinking, which means having more than 15 drinks a week every month. Iowa ranks second in the nation in that category. Every second in the USA, $3,075.64 is spent on pornography. That means that by the end of this message, over $5.5 million will have been spent on pornography. That comes out to be about $97 billion a year. Roughly every 13 seconds, there's a divorce in the United States. That's 138 divorces just in the time of this message. Somewhere between 15,000 and 50,000 women and children are forced into the sex slave trade every year in our own country. So we see that just like in the days of Noah, violence and corruption are spreading. And the sad reality is, is I could go on and on with tragedy after tragedy for hours and not even begin to scratch the surface. There is one more reality about our world that is similar to Noah's world that I believe is worth our consideration. According to the Pew Research Center, today about 3 in 10 U.S. adults are religious nuns. Not N-U-N-S, we're not all wearing black dresses and hoods and walking around being super Catholic. N-O-N-E-S. People who describe themselves as atheists, agnostics, or nothing in particular when asked about their religious identity. This is the fastest growing segment in our country. So three in 10 people are oblivious to the realities of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. 
they're oblivious to the reality that he is coming back. Three in 10 people are living according to a worldview which says they have no need for a savior. They deny the fact of sin. And that should be a very sobering reality for us. The reality is that with a statistic like that, there's a chance that some of you in here are ignorant of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. You're ignorant of the grace available to you. You're ignorant of the means of escape of the wrath to come. You come to church, you go to Bible study. It's just an exercise in moralistic therapy. But until you come to grips with the reality that your sin separates you from God, you won't feel the weight of that reality. Jesus coming to die isn't just part of a nice little story for us to tell at Easter so we can make a big deal about the resurrection. When Christ went to the cross, he went knowing that the full weight of the wrath of God would be poured out on him, much like a flood. Jesus didn't die for sin in the generic sense. He died with your sin in mind. He died with my sin in mind. He died for our lies, our rebellion, our idolatry. Romans 6.23 tells us, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If your hope is not in Christ, or you think you've got time before you have to turn to him, understand that you are accruing a debt, which on your own you can never pay. Brothers and sisters, don't be ignorant like in the days of Noah. Turn to Christ and keep your eyes fixed on him. That brings us to our second warning. Stay alert. Look again at Matthew 24, starting in verse 42. Therefore be alert, since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the homeowner had known what time the thief was coming, he would have stayed alert and not let his house be broken into. This is why you are also to be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. It's one thing to not be ignorant, to know about Christ, but it's another thing altogether to stay alert. And to be clear, I'm not advocating that we all quit our jobs and sell our houses and start a commune and go out and hold up signs saying, the end is nigh, return or burn. I'm not saying that Jesus is coming back at the end of the month. I'm saying that he's coming. We have to be ready. We have to stay ready, stay alert. So how do we get there? Well, first, you need to know the word of God. The best way to know who God is and not be ignorant of who God is is to study the word of God. He has given us his word. He has revealed himself to us in his word. One of our greatest joys as pastors is to provide as many opportunities as possible for you to study the scriptures. There are Bible studies, there are community groups, there are weekend services, there are equipped classes, there are so much more that will teach you to love the word of God, to teach you to know the word of God. Second, you need to stay connected to the people of God. The church is the place where we hold each other accountable, where we encourage one another, we build one another up, we warn one another. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning, for some people are ignorant about 
God. One of the best ways to not be ignorant about God is to spend your time with people who are not ignorant about God. Brings us to our third warning. Tell others. We need to tell others. Noah didn't keep the flood a secret. He warned the people that a flood was coming. Oftentimes when I read passages like this in the Old Testament, I do a little speculating. I wonder whether or not God would have allowed others on the ark if they repented. Kind of like Abraham kept asking God if there was even one righteous person. Or the way that God spared Nineveh in Jonah's day. But the good news is we don't have to speculate anymore. You know, we have a, a better Noah, a better ark. We have Jesus Christ who came to earth as a baby, grew up in holy obedience to God, suffered and died on the cross in our place, rose again on the third day, conquering death for all who would put their hope and faith in him. And a day is coming for everyone whether it's at the return of Christ or death, where they will have to come face to face with this reality. And as Christians, we have the good news that people need to hear. We understand the disease and we have the cure. We need to adopt Paul's exhortation to Timothy into our daily lives. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and teaching. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will, not, and will turn aside to myths. So brothers and sisters, I don't really know how much longer we have the ability to speak as freely as we do as Christians. I don't know how much longer we can preach the truth as openly as we do. But it doesn't matter whether the government says we can or not. We're under obligation by the word of God to warn others of the wrath to come, to tell others the good news of Jesus coming to die for their sins, the hope that they have of eternal life in Christ. So brothers and sisters, don't be ignorant. Stay alert, and warn others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word where you have shown us over and over again that your intention was to send Jesus to die in our place, to be our great redeemer. God, help us to be a people who know you and love you, that point others towards you. Thank you for the work of Christ on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.